Okay, Acts 15, one through 11. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, (laughs) we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. All right. So, uh, I'm glad you're all here. Um, And... Before we get going, I've been asked to make you aware of the fact that we need desperately uh, We Watermark volunteers. We used to have, back in March, BC, we had about 100 people, that joke will hit you in a second, we had like 100 people uh, volunteering and like in motion and our, our volunteer machine was this well-oiled thing and we were all moving, it was like a, it was like a dance, like a choreographed dance. It was wonderful. And that is, that is gone and dead, and we are rebuilding, I guess, from scratch. And so we need more people. Uh, I, have, I have specifications here that I have been given. Um, oh, man. We, our goal is 10 volunteers per Sunday to start. That's not as many, not near as many as we used to have. Just 10 volunteers, because people are not ready to come back yet, but when they do, on our first Sunday back for stage three, we will probably have a few kids like here and there. And I would like for their parents to be free to come in here. And, and what we're looking for is people that like, that will really honestly just love the children, that will teach them um, the path of Jesus, that will sort of form, spirit, help spiritually form this, the, the next generation of the church, that will inherit this space and our faith and all of that. So we, we need people who want to pour into children. Um, and... We're just building from scratch again. So we're looking for, for anybody who's willing to do that. Um, so if you can, if you're interested uh, and you want more information or whatever, you can, you can sign up at watermarktampa.com slash reopening, or you can email us, governing board at Watermark Tampa, or elders at Watermark Tampa, or Nicole at Watermark Tampa. She's the, uh, she's the children's coordinator. Um, and ask any questions you have, but we really need people. Um, and as we, as we sort of move towards that slowly, you know, we're, we have like so few people in here. We're not even at like, we're not even at like, I don't think 10% in the room. So everything like we're moving real slow. We're being super safe and we always have moved real slow with this whole thing. Um, trusting that God's going to do his thing. So, um, 
we're going to keep the room safe. We are going to keep them clean. We'll have windows open. The weather will be nice, hopefully. It's Florida in December. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. So think about that. Pray about that. We need people. Um, so our passage today, uh, you just heard it, read um, from the illustrious Laura Hill. Um, and it is, we're in chapter 15 now. So we're in like this second half of Acts. And from this point on, the conversation is going to shift. It has been hinted at over and over and over. I'm going to rearrange the furniture while I'm up here. It has been hinted at over and over that um, there will be an issue of diversity and inclusion in the church. It has been hinted at throughout the text. Um, It's been hinted at several places. People keep coming together, and as they come together, there's like this tension um, that like, we've never been in your presence. You've never been a part of our group. Um, And so it's going to come to this head right here where they have to have this conversation. So this passage, Acts chapter 15, is known as the, uh, the Jerusalem Council, where they call together all the Christians, and they hash out the problems that are arising from people from different cultures and different spectrum, spectrums coming together to worship Jesus together because nobody knows how to do this because nobody's ever done this before. Um, and so if you've ever, if you've ever, I'll talk about it like this, if you've ever stood on a dam, okay, and you have sort of, you face one way and there's one thing and you face the other way and there's like this totally different thing, um, different Like, there's this incredible amount of power that you feel is, like, being held back on the other side of this dam, all this water piled up, Um, and there's this sense of, like, you kind of ask yourself, like, what would happen if they just, like, let this thing go, if the water just went, or even if they just, like, opened it up and let, like, a bunch of it through, And, and you look down over, like, maybe there's, like, towns, and there's, like, schools and churches and, like, houses, and you're, like the things that would change. And maybe there's even other bodies of water. There's like a lake down there and there's people skiing. And up here, there's like this massive, massive lake. And you're like, well, this would change the whole dynamic of that lake uh, if all this was released. Um, And so you kind of wonder like, if they ever decided to remove this dam, how could they ever do that? Or does this thing just have to stay forever? Will there always be a divide between these two sides now? Um, Because if they did, I mean, people are living lives down here. And they've been living lives for generations. What about the, all the things that would need to change? All the cultures that would be like wiped out? Would, would they have to adapt? Would they have to move? What would, ha- what would happen? Um, is there a way to remove the dam and still preserve the place on the other side? Uh, and so when I think about that idea and I think about this passage, it, it's sort of like the same thing. So first off, there was this dam between the Jews and the Gentiles. It had always been there. They had always been two separate people, two separate places. And there was always this permanent separation holding them all back. But God is going to remove the dam. And you're like, what? Okay, how is this going to go? How is God going to remove something that's always been there? Um, And so at first we see like this crack in the dam early in the book of Acts at about chapter 6. We see the tension between like the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Christians, right? There are these, there's, there's Jew, they're all Jewish Christians, and then suddenly, sorry, Michael, let me adjust this thing real fast before we get going. People told me last week I was too quiet because the mic wasn't close enough to hear, but I used to have, before this whole COVID thing, I had short hair, and it was easier to attach a microphone, and now it's all very confusing. Um, and so where was I? Okay, so you had these Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians, 
it's, it's easy to sort of, make, it's a little easier to allow sort of these Hellenistic Jewish people into the church, okay? That's a little easier because there's not much assimilation that needs to happen. They already kind of think the same. And so, but, but it's still, it still is a little difficult. There's a little bit of a crack in the dam between like the Hellenist, the Greek Christians and the Jewish Christians, but still they can come together, but there's still that tension. But then you go a little farther into chapter 11 and you, you get to this point where like Paul, I mean, Peter, invites this Roman centurion and his whole household to become a part of the church. And this is different because now there's like a little group of people that are going to enter into the Jewish Christian church and they don't know how to be Jewish. They don't know how to be Christian, but God has called them in. And so that causes some problems and some people get very mad about that. And so there's a crack first off and then there's a bit of a hole. There's like more water coming through and the culture, they're they're like a little afraid that the culture is going to change. And then suddenly... There is chapter 14, where completely Greek churches appear all over sort of the north area with no Jewish people in the city, no Jewish people in the church, but they're following a Jewish Messiah. And this is a problem Um, because now what do we do? They have no idea. Everyone else has sort of like, it's been a little movement, so it's been easy to sort of adapt them into the Jewish ways of following the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, as a Christian. Um, And suddenly there's a problem because the Jewish people are terrified because the dam has burst wide open and they've only ever lived in separation, but now they have brothers and sisters that are nothing like them. And it's threatening their culture that goes back 2,000 years almost. Um... And so the questions are like, what is to become of them? What's to become of their traditions, of their ways, of their identity? Their identity was, we're not like you. That was their whole identity. That was their shtick. That was the whole thing. God said, I'm going to have a people that are going to be different from everybody else. So like, if your whole identity is, we are not like you, and suddenly God makes them like you, what do you do now? Who are you? What's your identity? Um... And so what happens, what happens when, it, when a new type of people moves into the sort of the neighborhood, maybe you can like put it in modern day, what happens when a whole new type of people move into the neighborhood that has been there for a long time and they are nothing like you and everyone else who has lived there? What happens is disruption. And what happens is you, everyone has to sort of change and adapt. But people don't want to change and people don't want to adapt. They just don't want to. And so it is essential that Paul call a council. Paul's going to call a council of all the leaders, all the elders of all the churches, especially um, the Jewish leaders, and they're going to come together at the mother church, which is held in Jerusalem. And so they're going to have this council. It's the first ever, ever sort of council of churches coming together to work through the tensions, and the, I'll just say it honestly, to work through the xenophobia of, of how this is going to work. Um... And it's not the kind of thing where you can look at it and say they just need to get over it. Because they've never had to get over anything before. They've never had to deal with any, anything like this. But suddenly, God has brought in people who have never belonged. And so, let me first, we're going to talk through this. Let me first give you, um, we're going to look ahead. I'm going to give you the whole structure of this chapter. Okay, we're probably going to be here for a couple of weeks. Um, and so I want to lay out for you the whole structure of the whole chapter. Here it is. Here's the whole thing. So it starts off in verse 15. This is the council. 
Uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 15, verse 1 through 5, Luke describes the confrontation between Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christians, and the Antioch Christians. So, so he, Luke, sort of, Luke is the author of the book, of, of Acts. Um, it's part two of his two-part series, uh, Luke and Acts. Um, and so at first, Luke describes the confrontation that happens. Uh, verse 6 through 11, Peter has this monologue that he's going to lay out. That's what we're going to focus on really today, but not the whole thing. We're going to do some of it today. Um, and then in verse 12, there's one verse where Paul and Barnabas sort of say something. I imagine there's more to it, but this is all Luke gives us of this conversation. And then you go to verse 13 through 21. James draws the arguments to a conclusion and offers recommendations. So they hear all the arguments and James says, okay, let's conclude and here's what we're going to do. And they draw out sort of an outline of here's how we're going to do this. Um, and it describes, verse 22 to 35, describes how the decisions were implemented, okay? This is an outline sort of a whole chapter and how it works. Um, but really, it starts right here in verse 1. This is the conversation that they're having. Because there's some people, it says, certain people, it doesn't want to tell us who, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is what starts it. And you think, well, that's a super weird thing to get really hung up on. Like, why is it that these guys are traveling all the way down to here and they're suddenly like, hey, you, I can't actually become a Christian unless you get circumcised. And modern day people, you hear that and you're like, well, that's, I don't understand why this is such a big deal. Like, you'll never know. <laughs> like, like, how, why does this matter? Um, and so what I want to do is I want to lay out this morning why this matters for them. I want to lay out sort of, the, I want to lay out for you the argument of the Jewish people. And I want you to see where they're coming from. Because I imagine there's some places in all of our lives where we, if we have not had to deal with these kind of things yet, we will. If we have not had to deal with like being set in our ways and suddenly the other entering in. If we haven't dealt with that yet, we will one day. And so we have to think through this. We have to understand what they're going through. So I'm going I'm to start off talking about salvation and works because this is the whole argument. If you are not circumcised, by the, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, this is a biblical argument. These guys are not just making this up, okay? Let me explain to you what this is. Now, um, the first thing you need, to, you need to understand about the system of beliefs of the first century Jewish people is that they were not legalistic. Um, if you're not familiar with that term, what that term means, maybe it's just a term you, people kind of throw around. It's, it's kind of a term a lot of people don't understand, but we throw it around a lot. Like people want you to take your head off in, in, in the building and you're like, quit being legalistic, man. Um, and so let's talk about this. So the general idea that Christians have believed since the time of Luther, really, um, the way Christians have thought about the Jewish religion is like this, that the Jewish people were saved through the law, okay? And we call them good works. Um, and since the time of Luther, this is kind of how people have believed. Growing up, I believe this. Maybe you believe this right now, okay? If that's the case, I want to talk you through this and like maybe open up your mind a little bit for, for like to maybe shift on that a little bit. Um, we believe that the Jewish people come to God and salvation through the law. They obey the law. God gave them the law. They obey the law. And then they receive salvation. And it's not just that we think Jewish people do this. Like if you, if a lot of evangelicals, if, if you ask them sort of like, how do Jewish people, we always put, for some reason we always say, how do Jewish people go to heaven? Um, even though that's not a conversation in the Bible. How do you go to heaven? Um, 
How, how do Jewish people go to heaven? They say, well, they, they believe if they, if they keep the law, they'll go to heaven. Um, and then we sort of ask about other religions. And what happens is, oh, by the way, this right here is called legalism. That's what legalism is. That's the definition of it, okay? That for, for our working purposes, there's other variations of what it could mean as well. But this is what I mean when I say legalistic. But we take this idea that we project onto the Jewish people, that they believe they're saved by works, and we universalize it. We say, by the way, that's what every religion is doing. Uh, and then we say, yeah, every religion out there, and I put etc. on the end just to lay them all out. Um, and Christians, evangelical pastors love to say, that's what makes Christianity unique, is that we don't believe that we go to heaven based upon our works. Um, and the assumption in that is that everyone else does believe that, okay? Um, except here's the thing. Um, the Jewish people were not legalistic. We know this. Um, modern biblical scholarship has shown us and proven to us through various, various methods of like understanding a lot, a lot of, a lot of texts found of the ancient world. We've read a lot about Judaism now. Um, the works of like E.P. Sanders and, and, uh, and N.T. Wright and even uh, professors of mine like Scott McKnight and stuff. They have shown us like the ancient Jewish people were not legalistic. That's not what they believed at all. Um, they were what is called a covenant gnomism. Maybe you've never heard that term. Oh, let's do it. Everyone say covenant gnomism. Hey, it's been a while since we did it. Never mind. It's lost all its allure. Um, okay. So Judaism is what's called a covenant gnomism. Now, here's what, here's what this means. By the way, uh, gnome is the word for law. Okay? So it's a covenant, like law-based system. You don't need to understand that. Here's what you need to know about Judaism. They believed, um, first off, they believed they were saved by faith. Hebrews says this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. Um, they, they were saved by faith in the Abrahamic covenant at the very beginning. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to make you a new people. And this people is going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand of the sea. And, and it is going to be a people that is going to bless the world and eventually bring salvation to the world, restoration of all things. So they believe they're saved by faith in the Abrahamic covenant. And on top of that, the Jewish people believed that, by the way, yeah, Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 clearly state that Abraham and many others were saved by faith, not law-keeping. Okay, and they knew this. Um, they believed. They believed in the law in a different way. Okay, the law came about with Mount Sinai, but they believed that they were saved by the Abrahamic covenant, and that the law at Mount Sinai that they received there, it helps them to remain in the covenant. The law was sort of like a, like a helper, like a crutch. It helps them to be a different people in the world. It purposely laid out that they were going to live weird lives. They were going to do weird things, different things. They were going to be holy. That comes from the word hagios, which means different. You're going to be a different people. You're not going to be like everyone else. You're going to be different. So they believed that they were saved by faith and they remained in God's people through the law. And if you didn't keep the law, if you, most importantly, if you didn't keep like the day of atonement, if you did, chose not to take part, you were out of the camp. You were not one of these people. You were not one of God's people. You were out of the covenant. But if you kept the law, you remained in the covenants, okay? So, some definitions. Um, salvation was based upon the Abrahamic covenant. Justification was based upon law. They were saved by faith, justified by law. 
This is how the Jewish people believed, okay? Um, later on, especially when we get to the book of Romans, we're going to talk about how Jesus shifted everything and how Gentiles come into the camp. But you can see now already what the tension is going to be. Sure, Gentiles coming in can get saved by faith, but then what's got to happen? They got to be circumcised. Why? Because that's part of the law. So the question is, why did they only focus on circumcision? That's a good question. Thank you for asking that question. Here we go. Um, so, if you're going to talk about the law as a first century Jewish person, by the first century, over, the, over like the 1800 year time span, the religion had sort of evolved, as religions do. They revolved and they changed and they sort of streamlined and they got better ways of teaching things. Um, and it ended up by the time of Christ that there were three particular laws that stood for all the law, okay? Um, and those three laws were the food restrictions, eating kosher, okay? Um, the Sabbath keeping, keep the Sabbath holy, remember it, keep it holy, and circumcision. And in general, these three laws stood for all the law. So if you looked at somebody's life and you wanted to know whether or not they were Jewish, you're gonna look at three things. You're going to ask if they're circumcised, you're going to watch and see if they keep the Sabbath, and you're going to watch what they eat and how they eat. And if they're keeping these three things, they're one of God's people. We're not looking into what kind of seeds they're planting in their garden. We're not looking at the length of their tassels. We're not looking at the rounding of their hair, like all the Levitical law that's laid out, the whatever, thousands of laws that are there. By the first century, we're looking at three things, circumcision, Sabbath, and food, which is why Every con confrontation in the New Testament has to do with these three things. And that's it. Nobody else is arguing about any other things. This is it. Every flip through in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, this is what they're arguing about. Every problem that Paul is writing to solve in the church, it's one of these three things. Always. Why? Because these are stand-ins for the law. And by the way, if you kept these three things, you were doing what they called good works. And when the Bible talks about, in the New Testament, when it talks about good works... These are the things that it's talking about. We, for uh, 21st century American Christians, when we read good works, we read passages like Matthew where it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We think, this is why you need to pay your taxes. This is why um, you need to not, you know, not steal, not cheat, not lie. This is why you need to feed the poor. This is why. And we think good works in modern day refers to those things. Whatever we think is good. Typically, our ideas of good are culturally formed, whatever. But in fact, if you are a first century Jewish person and you're hearing somebody, a Jewish person like Jesus, talk about good works, you're thinking these three things. That's all you're thinking of, okay? Um, and Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience in the book of Matthew, and he says, they should know you're my people. They should be able to look at you and see that you're my people. But he goes a lot deeper than that too. He actually redefines what it means to follow the law. So, um, by the time of Christ, this are, these are the things that they are. So, these were placeholders. They were, they were the good works. And when you read about good works, this is what the authors are talking about. And if a child in the first century wants to know, if, the, if a child comes up and says, hey, so how do you keep the law? They, they would be basically told, you're gonna eat like an Israelite? You're going to keep the Sabbath like an Israelite, and you are going to be circumcised like an Israelite. And that's why all the arguments center around these three things. Because how could you be a good Jew if you, if you played fast and loose with the Sabbath? 
That's why when people looked at Jesus, when the Pharisees especially looked at Jesus, they had a hard time with him because he's not setting himself apart from the world as one of God's people because he's breaking the Sabbath constantly. Um, how could Paul be a good Israelite if he played fast and loose with eating non-kosher foods? When he eats food sacrificed to idols, that is not kosher food. How can you claim to be a Jewish man, a, a person of God, if you were eating this kind of food? Um, how can any Christian ever be considered the follower of the Messiah if they're not circumcised? How? They can't. This is not a small issue. This is central. This one issue of circumcision is central to how you remain in the people who are saved. And so suddenly there's all these Christians following the Jewish Messiah by faith, but they're not doing the three things that stand for all the law. They're not keeping the placeholders, the identity markers of God's people. This is a central issue in Israel's entire history. It is from this place that, when you, that we can now return to sort of our passage in Acts 15 and understand the problem because um, these men who came from Antioch had firm biblical arguments. What they were saying was biblical. And the Gentiles coming to the Jewish Messiah must adhere to these good works. And Luke doesn't give us any of the details about the council. He doesn't tell us who was there he doesn't tell us how long it was, how many days it was, or all the arguments. He just wants to lay out sort of the basic things because he knows that his audience knows exactly what's going on when they read about this. Um, and so Luke isn't interested in any of the types of details. What Luke is interested in is the results and the opinions of the figures that support the church in Antioch. He wants to know, okay, what are they going to do now? He, and, he wants, and he wants us to ponder that. How is it that these two groups are going to come together when one is keeping the law as God's people and the other is not going to? How is it that these groups can, can, can come together and be one church, one people, brothers and sisters? And all Luke tells us is in verse 7. He says, after much discussion, it says several named individuals offered their opinion. He didn't tell us any of the discussion. So um, let me lay that out for you. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sort of lay an illustration uh, for you that will help you sort of grasp how we are to think of this. And I think it's, it's very telling of how we are to move through our world today as well, and the church. So, Peter is the main focus of this passage, and Peter lays out four very simple arguments. The first one that he says, Peter stands up, and he addresses this issue. Now that we know the issue, it's a huge deal, Peter stands up, and here's the first thing he says. He says, basically, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear. So what he's saying is, I want you to know, I didn't invite them in. I didn't make them Christians. I didn't make them followers of the Messiah. God did this. This has nothing to do with me. God drew these people in. So you can argue with me all you want about Cornelius and his household, about all these churches of, of Gentiles. You can get mad at me all you want, but I didn't do any of this. God himself is drawing people in that have never belonged. And if God is doing that, your argument is not with me. It's with God. Whoever God is drawing in belongs. And that is for you to deal with. Not them, not me. This is your problem to solve and your sin to repent of if God is bringing them in. That's the first argument he makes. The second argument that Peter makes is, is uh, it's in verse eight. It says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So he says, look, God has already accepted them. He's given them the Holy Spirit, the same one that you have. So even if you don't accept them, God already has. So you're going to be the one in the wrong. If they want to come into the church, if God has drawn them in, who are you to keep them out? 
God has made them one of his. This is Peter's argument. Peter's third argument is in verse nine. He says, he purified them, uh, their hearts by faith. How were you purified? Well, by keeping the law. If you kept the law, you would stay pure, right? Um, And so in other words, he says, God has made them pure without doing any of the good works. He says, the fact that the spirit of God is upon them means that he was not deterred by their lack of keeping the good works. And if you think about that, he's basically saying, and the spirit of God probably would have come upon you too, but you were always doing the good works, so you never would have known. If you had ceased doing the good works, the spirit of God still would have come upon you. So what he's saying is like, God made them pure. They didn't do any of these things, and the Spirit of God, which was present in the temple, and you couldn't go into the temple unless you were pure, the, the Spirit of God, it rested upon them. We saw works. We saw miracles that they performed, that were performed among their midst. The Spirit of God was making himself present and known. So that's the third argument. He makes one more argument, and it's a big one. 10 and 11. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So what he's saying is, any laws that you are putting upon them that they have to, that they have to follow, like circumcision, you were the one doing that, not God. And I know you're doing it because it's the biblical thing. But just because it's biblical doesn't make it Christ-like. Christ is doing something different than even your understanding of the Bible. And so he lays it all out, and, and there's nothing for them to say. He says, look, you can, you can argue all day about whether or not they're, they belong, whether or not they're good enough to join the church, whether or not they've lived up to the standard, but like, none of these standards are God. God has brought them through our doors and sat them down next to you and put the songs that you were singing in their heart, his words on their lips, and invited them to the communion table to take the, bo- the broken body and the poured out blood into themselves. That has nothing to do with you. You can be mad as you want about them being there. But you didn't bring them in. God did. So this has nothing to do with you. And all of this is a really huge conversation in their day. Like this is the birth of our church, the Gentile church. God has drawn us in. We didn't assimilate. You didn't, you weren't good enough. You didn't like live up to some standard for God to accept you. God reached out, made himself known and brought you in. And so you can argue all you want about these people that don't belong, the people on the other side of some divides, people like who don't live up to some moral expectation. You can do that all you want. But I want you to know, you yourself never lived up to any of the expectation. God brought you in, and God is bringing them in. And if God brings them through the door, I want you to know they are your brother or your sister. That's the baseline. That's it. And so, all of this brings us to sort of the, the constant phrase that is throughout the Bible, the idea of adoption. Paul will constantly come back to the thing that like the idea that you were adopted in to this thing. And as a person who has been adopted, you, you receive all the same rights, all the same 
like things that the heirs of, of, of the mother and father received who were born this way. The Gentiles receive all of the things that the Jews received, even though they weren't born into the family, even though they were adopted and brought in. For naturally born children, adoption is probably the hardest for them, for children who were raised in the family, born naturally of the parents. It is hard for them oftentimes really difficult for for them to receive this other child coming into the family. The mother and the father have brought in someone new and and they are different in a lot of ways. They don't know, they don't understand the family ways. They don't have the history, the traditions, the, the, the ways of being one of us. I always talk to my kids about like an identity, about who we are. Like, and one of my, I think for me, one of the most powerful arguments that worked was like, was my parents when they talked about who I am. They're like, we don't do that. You're a, you're a Phillips. Like, we love people. We respect people. We look up to people. We don't talk to people like that. That is not, you are representing our whole family when you're out there. And I, I, I kind of pulled this on my kids too. I'm like, that is not, like, we don't talk to people that way. We are Phillipses. You carry the name of all of us. Wear it, represent it as well as you can. And so like, but these other kids coming in, they don't know the ways of the Phillips, right? Like, and so it's hard to understand them. And we, we tend to think that the, the kids who were born naturally, naturally born of the family think, no, no, they have to become like us. In fact, they have to learn our ways and accept them if they really want to really be, become one of us. And so we're going to start teaching them to become like us. And of course, like, that obviously would be what mom and dad want, right? I mean, they intended for these children to assimilate, didn't they? Didn't they want these children to assimilate, to become like us, the ones that they raised? After all, didn't, didn't mom and dad create this culture? Didn't mom and dad raise us to be like this? Obviously then, any other children being brought in must learn our ways. They have to be taught like us in order to eat at our table, to share our Christmas traditions with us and our, our, our presence and our space and our, the way we decorate and to receive sort of funds for, for college alongside of us. If that's going to happen, obviously mom and dad intend for them to become like us. And you guys, it's really hard for the child who has always belonged to accept that their mother and father would bring someone in for no other reason than to love them and give them a home. It's hard for the natural born children to grasp this. It's a foreign idea, just like it was for the Jewish people. And you know what else? It's, it's, it's just as difficult for the church to realize that God is calling everyone in, everyone in, for no other reason than to love them and give them a home. It is not conformity in the church that binds people to God. It's not that at all. It's not conformity that makes people belong. What makes people belong in the church is the fact that God calls them his child and they call him father. In the same way that what makes these adopted children coming in, what makes them belong is not the fact that they assimilate to the ways of the other children. What makes them belong is the fact that they call the parents mother and father and mother and father call them son or daughter. That's what makes them belong. It has nothing to do with anything else. That alone is enough. The child is not recognized because she has the same hair color or eye color or skin color or mannerisms as all the other children, but because her life reflects not the family culture, 
but belonging. That's it. Because she looks to her father for guidance, for cues on how to live, identity, and belonging. Because she calls no other man father but him, and no other woman mother but her. That's what makes somebody belong. But we're never happy with that. We want them to become like us, to adopt our morals, our ideas, our culture. And I think the best people to learn about this from, the best theologians, are African-American theologians like William Jennings. He, he says something this week that just stuck with me all week, and I read it over and over. It says, we struggle over what faithful bodies must look like and over their alignment, their conformity to dominant culture, normative orientation, aesthetic form, or intelligent temperament. We, like the Judean disciples, are tempted to control the unknown and domesticate difference. All we are comfortable with is us and people like us. But the fact is that God is drawing other people in that are nothing like you. And this is where it gets difficult. If God has drawn them in, then they belong to you. No amount of cultural deviation can separate them from you. And to the extent that your brother or sister isn't reconciled to you, the extent at which they don't meet your standards is the extent to which you need to repent. Because they, they may never meet your standards. But your standards don't really matter. The only standard that matters is the fact that Christ has called out to their heart and their soul and drawn them into his people, put the desire to draw near to Jesus in their heart. And the spirit of God has rested upon their life. And just like at the beginning of creation in Genesis, the spirit of God is hovering there and doing the spirit's work. You are not doing the work for them. The spirit is. You are there to be the presence of Christ to be the Imago Dei, to be all of the things that Jesus was for all these other people around him, none of whom lived up to the standards of the Jewish people. And so there's so often we refuse to gather with people and we refuse to draw near to them. We refuse to let them near us. Even though God is drawing them in, we refuse because we have a set idea of what they should be like. And that set of ideas just happens to look just like us. Again, they were using biblical arguments, but not Christ-like arguments. And I'm gonna leave that there for you to ponder, to do what you want with. In our world that is so fragmented, we must be ready for whoever it is that God is going to draw into our midst. We must be ready to look upon them and receive them as our brother and our sister. No matter what their status, no matter what their race, no matter how they move through this world, they are your brother and sister. I wanna close in prayer. And I want to do a collect prayer with you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for this place and these people. I lift all of my brothers and sisters up to you. I pray that you would prepare us for who you are making us into. I pray that we would be a people that represent you. 
that are your faithful people that have our arms open, that are here to be formed by the things of you, that are, that are being drawn in and inviting other people to be drawn in as well, letting your spirit do the work, not us. Let us assist in whatever way we can. Let us pour ourselves out however we can. Um, continue to watch over us. Continue to protect us and guide us in our spiritual formation. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So why don't you stand with me and we'll close out with a collect prayer and then we can uh, hang out and talk, shall we? Do this nice and loud with me, ready? Father God, who is triune and still one, let us learn from your unity during our division. May we come together for goodness and do as you have called us to do, to act justly, love mercifully, and walk humbly with you through creation. Love you all. Thank you for gathering with us. Love everyone who couldn't gather with us. And we'll see you soon, no doubt. Thank you.